morning. We haven't been introduced yet. My name's Dave Werns. I have the privilege of serving here at Grace Fellowship as the Director of Missions and Mobilization. Uh, what that means is my office looks after our cross-cultural and our domestic partnerships. And today, we're going to be mostly focusing on the international side of the business. It's not a, it's not a value statement, right? We deeply deeply commit to our local partners. We're heavily invested. In fact, many of the leaders and volunteers attend one of our campuses. Those partners that we have in our region, they use our facilities on a weekly basis for all kinds of things, for Bible studies, training events, conferences, you name it. Uh, Monday nights, you're going to find Young Life uh, up at our Fort Thomas campus. They kind of take over. In fact, on any given day, on any given week, there's probably a Young Life meeting happening somewhere in one of our buildings. Thursday nights has Cincy at the Well uh, meeting for not just a training, but also for ministering to women in the adult entertainment industry. Campus Outreach has an office space dedicated to their staff at our Fort Thomas campus. And just about every week, I'm meeting with at least one, sometimes more, uh, with our local ministry partners, their, their leadership, and their volunteers. And we do, we talk about strategy, we talk about budgets, we talk about vision. But it's more than that. We really are great friends. We talk about our families. We talk about the ups and downs of, of full-time ministry. We, we pray for one another. And that's not unique to me. It's not unique to my role here at the church. Many of you have those same relationships with our local ministry partners. They're in your community group, right? You, some of them are in your families, or, or at least you sit behind them at a service. These are dear and precious friends to our church family. And even if you don't know them yet, any one of our local partners would be delighted to get some time with you, get to know you, and I can make that happen. Send me an email. Seriously, right after service, send me an email. You want to talk to Rick Shear? I'll get you a cell phone number. I can make that happen. Or you want to get breakfast with Austin Sprong? You want to chat over with Karen Class, Nate Salee, Isaac Kane, Maddie Godsey, Logan Carpenter? Who do you want? <laughs> They're all right here. I hope you can see that is exactly why we're shining a spotlight on our cross-cultural partners. They are not right here. It's the same reason I'm wearing a microphone right now. It's not because we love the folks in the front row at Florence so much more or so much less. It's not because my voice can't carry to the back of the room. Maybe it can. But it can't carry online. It can't carry to Independence and Fort Thomas, not without help, not without some form of outside amplification. Because the farther the distance a voice needs to go, the greater the need for assistance. Over long distances, my words get muddled or lost. And while I really do mean it, I will do whatever I can to connect any of you with our local ministry partners. I think you would be blessed to meet with them. I'm also a realist. And I know how difficult it is to make time for people that you don't know already, especially if they don't owe you money. 
And that difficulty only increases as we add in physical distance, time away from one another. You add in technological difficulties, the ever-shrinking pool of common interests or experiences or cultural references that make up the bulk of most of our relationships. Friends, without that, voices get lost. So I want to spend the rest of our time together, hopefully amplifying the voices of our cross-cultural workers and exploring together what a connection might look like with people you can't just grab breakfast with. So would you ask, join with me asking God for help in hearing from our workers consistently and clearly. God, we love you. We love that you are a sending God, that you sent your son, that you send us. Father, would you help us? Help us as a church family to grow and mature as a sending image bearer. We need your Holy Spirit to change our hearts and our lives. Amen. The more I explore and experience the larger world of cross-cultural ministry, the more grateful I am for our church. We have an unusual missions culture here. It's far from perfect. I'll be the first to tell you that. But God has given us some very unique strengths. And he's given us some incredible opportunities to use those strengths. And I don't think you need to be fully immersed in the missions culture here to make a connection with one of our cross-cultural workers. I think you could do that right off the cuff. But similar to my microphone plugging into a sound system and being projected across the, you know, the magic of technology, I think you're going to understand the communication that comes from our missionaries so much better. It will be so much clearer, louder to you if you have a clear understanding of our culture of sending here. All of those prayer updates and newsletters, they don't have to be white noise in your inbox. So I want to look at a few passages of Scripture today that I hope will clarify our mission's culture and amplify our missionaries' communication. So turn with me to the book of 3 John. If you're not there already, it's in the back of the book. If you get to the, the very last book, Revelation, take a little bit, a couple of pages to the left, you'll probably get there. This is the Apostle John writing. He is the author of Revelation. He is also the author of the Gospel of John. Yes, I am stalling for you all who are getting there. Third John, we'll pick it up in verse 5. John's writing to his good friend Gaius. He's commending him for this outstanding hospitality that he showed to some traveling evangelists. And he's encouraging his friend to do even more. John says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers. 
for the truth. I think this passage, it really encapsulates a lot of what makes our church special in the missions world. There's a lot of reasons for churches to engage in cross-cultural ministry. There's, there's compassion for the lost. right? We really hope that our missionaries have that. But that's not why we sent them. I think there's, there's usually a love for people in general and sometimes a specific love for a particular kind of person or a people group. Again, I know our folks have that. But that's not really the reason they went. Our reason is down in verse 7. Look at verse 7. They have gone out for the sake of the name. That is the motivation from Grace Fellowship. And in faith and, and by God's grace, our people have embraced the difficult truth of God's absolute sovereign rule over all that he's created. And because of that, we can abide the uncomfortable fact that billions of people, it's billions with a B, billions of people are born, live, and die separated from a holy God by their sin. And those people are then judged by a holy God. And they are sentenced to an eternity of suffering and punishment with no hope of rescue or relief. We don't like that. It doesn't sit well with us. But at the end of the day, our people can rest on the truth that the Apostle Paul proclaims in Romans chapter 9. Verse 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed to all the earth so that he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And so it's not the untold horrors of hell that motivates our people to the mission field. On the contrary, it is the unsung glories of heaven that gets us out of bed in the morning. It's the fact that there are corners of the world still, even today, where men and women do not yet sing joy-filled songs of gratitude like we just did. Where nobody writes songs of praise to their creator. Where no one has ever yet raised a glass in honor of King Jesus. That there are places in the world where people neither know God, nor fear God, or love him. That, friends, we cannot abide. So we go, and we send, and we partner. Our people joyfully go 
echoing John Piper saying, missions exist because worship does not. That is the foundational motivation for the people who go out. But it's not just for our missionaries. It is vital for the the people who send to get a hold of that truth as well. Their why informs our how. We see that in verse 6. Verse 6, the evangelist's purpose in going out is the foundation for Gaius' hospitality and sending. Verse 6, 3 John says, He who testified to your love before the church, you will do well, well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Right? For they have gone out for the sake of the name. Friends, the vast majority of our missions effort here at Grace Fellowship is centered around these two verses. It's finding people who are willing to go out for the sake of the name. And then sending those people in a manner worthy of God. Let me give you an example. Most years, scratch a couple of years that had a you know, global pandemic. Most years, we try to bring all of our cross-cultural workers together for an event we call The Retreat. It's not a conference. We don't train people. It's not, it's not a networking or skill building. It's just a retreat. We sing together. We eat together. We, we pray for one another. We have fun. Does that sound great? It is great. It is great. But you know what? Man, it is a monster to actually pull off. It is, it is a phenomenal effort involving dozens of people. We started looking for a location a year ago. At that time, the world was still sort of a patchwork of COVID restrictions and requirements, and so we had to find the lowest possible bar for COVID restrictions. And since the gravitational uh, center of our sending efforts, namely the children, uh, it moved to Asia out of Europe. There's way more kids now in Asia for us. So that's where we started looking. And Thailand was one of the first countries to open up the floodgates for tourism after COVID. And it happens to be fairly central. And and one of our workers lives there. The Darringtons live there. So it was pretty easy. Picking the country was the easy part. That was just a few hours uh, of casually perusing tourism policies on badly translated government websites. Easy stuff. Light work. The heavy lifting. The heavy lifting comes in the months of research, looking into local weather patterns, looking into bad TripAdvisor reviews, negotiating room rates, meal packages, right, over an 11-hour time difference through Google Translate. It's great. It's great stuff. Because we had some very specific requirements. We had things we needed to get. We needed a private room for 40 people, you know, one with all the fixings, air conditioning, chairs, doors, we needed some place to entertain or at least contain 15 kids, ages 2 to 16. And there's this huge culture gap between us and, and Thailand. For instance, the, the hotels, all of them have petting zoos. Why not? None of them have airport shuttles. It's like they expect you to ride the goat. Like it just doesn't... I'm missing something. Right? Everyone has complimentary afternoon tea delightful. No one's ever heard of an adjoining room. 
Sorry, your kids are going to have to sleep across the hall. That's just how, it's just how it goes, which works great for a toddler, let me tell you. <laughs> We're definitely not in Kansas anymore. Um, and that tedious process, months of work, was necessary. We had to do it because there are three things we absolutely wanted for this retreat. We wanted robust worship. It is so rare for a worker to get to sing like we just did in a language you know from the heart. So we wanted to pack it with us. We wanted to give them refreshing fellowship. Most of these people are isolated. They don't have networks of people to encourage them. So along with the fellowship, we wanted a flood of powerful encouragement to come from their church family. So we picked the the location, the dates, that was fine. But for the worship, we asked Russ and Monique Marshall to own the worship time. And man, they knocked it out of the park. If you know Russ and Monique, tell them thank you. They did a phenomenal job. They printed songbooks. They built contingency plans in case the lights went out. They practiced extra sets that they knew we probably wouldn't use just in case somebody wanted to sing in their free time. They researched travel hacks, how to pack up sound equipment. I think we ended up with four full-size carry, like checked luggage, hard side uh, bags just for the sound equipment. That was seven months worth of work for them. They have crazy chaotic lives on top of that. They get a little bit of help from our our AV director, our, our worship team. Folks, if you haven't talked to them yet, find Russ and Monique and ask them about what they experienced. Sure, it was a sacrifice, but friends, they got to see the fellowship and the worship right up close, firsthand. I know it was impactful. And they have a great story to tell. And the fellowship is a little hard to measure, but I can tell you the times of worship and singing, they really did set up our times of sharing and prayer so well. I asked all of the workers that came in to share something with the group that that didn't make it into the newsletters over the past year or so. And the level of transparency and and vulnerability, the, the humility that our workers showed, these are incredible people. Some of them had never met one another. And yet the the camaraderie, the familial feel that it had. We were able to celebrate together. We were able to mourn together, pray for one another like a family. And so I am confident that the retreat fellowship was a blessing. And as difficult as those were to pull off, the most difficult piece by far was the encouragement. That took over two years of prep. Two years ago, we started prepping for encouragement on this retreat. Two years ago, in 2021, we launched our first Missions Monday because we knew at some point we were going to want to bring a flood of encouragement to our workers. And we knew that in order to do that, the church needed more consistent, more up-to-date access on the trials and the triumphs in our missionaries' lives as close to real time as possible. Generic encouragement is great. God loves you. He's for you. It's better than nothing. But friends, some of you know that hearing the truth of God's word coming out of the mouth of someone familiar with your particular trial, with your specific struggle, 
has a much different impact. So we started Missions Monday so that people would be able to encourage. Last year, this sermon, the Missions Sunday sermon, it was centered around everybody needing to encourage workers. We gave you some very practical tools on how to do that. But this year, a couple of weeks before the retreat, we asked the whole church family to step up and write letters and notes and take videos and draw out verses and prayers and color pages in an effort to bless and encourage our missionaries. And you did. Thank you. Thank you for writing, for thinking, for praying. Katie Ballard was the admin support on field with us, and and she brought a carry-on suitcase stuffed with your letters, your notes, your videos, your encouragement. It was the most precious cargo we had next to my daughter. I can tell you I have never been more proud of our church family than when we got to deliver those notes of encouragement to our workers. Thank you. And here's the crazy thing. I don't know if it worked. How do you measure that? It's not like we're in a video game. It's not like we have health meters. Right? Nick Darrington gets three extra lives because he read your note. Sandy Dostal gets 8% more energy because you prayed for her. Really? But here's what I do know. All of the missionaries at the retreat know, without a shadow of a doubt, they have a sending church. I know that much. We're not perfect. No family is. But after years of planning, months of preparation, tens of thousands of dollars, and who knows how many hours of prayer, I can say without a shadow of a doubt, Our church intends for those who go out from us for the sake of the name to be sent in a manner worthy of God. We are ascending church. And for the record, yes, we are planning next year's retreat. I need to pick up the pace here. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This is the second passage that I think really encapsulates our missions culture. Because we don't just send our own people. We partner with those folks who are in other places striving for similar goals, using similar methods. Philippians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 25. This is Paul writing. He says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, your messenger, and the minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. 
The Apostle Paul is, is writing to a church in the city of Philippi. And just to be clear, in this context, Paul is the missionary. He's writing to a sending, supporting, partnering church. Acts chapter 13 tells the story about how Paul and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries. And then in Acts 16, we see his first encounter with Philippi. And we don't really have time to look into that story, but I would highly encourage you. That is a phenomenal story. Take some time this week to read that story in Acts 16. Bottom line, the church in Philippi is an excellent example that we use as a template for a partnering church. This guy, Epaphroditus, that Paul is talking about, he's from the Philippian church. He's what, the, uh, what we would say is the first century equivalent of our short-term mission trip. Right? He's got a round-trip ticket. Paul's in jail in Rome, and so the church at Philippi gathers a collection. They pool their resources, and they, they put that care package in the hands of one of their most trusted and capable members, Epaphroditus. But the relationship Paul has between the church in Philippi, right, it's not, and, and even Epaphroditus as an individual member of that church, it's not just financial. The language that Paul uses here, it's intimate. It's familial. Look at verse 25 again. Paul says of Epaphroditus, he is my brother. He's my fellow laborer. He's my comrade in arms. And that's the kind of camaraderie that we've come to expect from, from great movie classics like Braveheart or Gladiator or Top Gun. It's the things that we celebrate in the real-life stories of, of war heroes and veterans like Band of Brothers or uh, elite athletes like the boys in the boat. And camaraderie is not unique to Christians, but what makes Paul and Epaphroditus and Timothy and you and me, what makes us different from those soldiers, those athletes, we aren't striving for gold medals. We aren't sacrificing for national pride. Paul and Epaphroditus aren't risking their lives for freedom or the right to self-govern. They're risking their lives for the advancement of the gospel. They're risking their lives for the reputation of King Jesus. And so while these, these friendships we see in the movies, William Wallace and his crazy Irishman, or Maverick and Rooster, the, the men of easy company, they all become brothers by enduring hardship together. But friends, Paul and Epaphroditus are already brothers. And so they can endure hardship that they haven't even seen yet because of the saving work of Christ. They can risk everything for one another because they're already united. And these kinds of relationships, they do take time to form. They do take effort to sustain. But this is the template that we use for partnerships. Let me give you an example. About a week or so before our retreat in Thailand, a very different team was boarding here in northern Kentucky at CVG. Six of our best Grace Fellowship's Epaphroditus. They set out for a very busy week in Nagoya, Japan. And our host in Nagoya, Japan is Sakai Bible Church. We have been very good friends with Sakai for a long time. We're probably pushing 20 years now. And to my knowledge, there has been no 
direct financial investment on either part. But there has been tons of man hours, of resources, of friendship and prayer. And for context, Japan is the second largest unreached people group in the world. It's about uh, 120 million people living in Japan today. Less than 1% of them claim to be Christians. So practically, that means that the churches that do exist are very small. They tend to be very isolated. They're vulnerable in ways that we just are not familiar with. So the Japanese pastors also tend to be very overworked. Generally very overwhelmed. They're faithful, but they are struggling. They're under-resourced. There's almost no network of support for full-time pastors. And so just like the church at Philippi, we pool together our resources. Not just money, but, but the teaching, the training, the experiences, the real-life one-anothering that we do every week in community group, in counseling. We put those in the hands of our capable team, and we send them at our own expense and our own hazard, just like Epaphroditus. I think the team on the ground ended up teaching something like 12 times over seven days. They taught men, they taught women, they taught young people, old people. They taught church leaders. They shared at an unchurched evangelistic event. They did a lot in a week. And for some of the team, it was a, it was a reunion of old friends. I think Tom and Claire Hotry have made this trip, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a dozen times. Even more, I think Joan Shope has actually been adopted into several Japan uh, communities, maybe uh, five or six families here in the States as well. But for others on the team, it was their very first time in Japan. But regardless of their familiarity, there was a familial camaraderie. Sakai Bible Church had never met our Stephen Petrie. But they welcomed him. They honored him. They listened to him. They learned from him. He was a stranger in a culture that values family above all else. Most people in Japan worship their ancestors. He's a young man in a culture that respects age and seniority above skill or talent. But for the sake of Christ, our two churches set aside many of our cultural preferences and norms. We endured the challenges of international travel. Even get to laugh a little bit about teaching through a translator. We truly are co-laborers for the gospel. We're fellow soldiers. We are brothers in Christ with our Japanese partners. And out of a mutual love for Jesus and a desire to see him worshipped in Japan, our team carried some of the precious truths that all of us are taught week in and week out about God's character, about his promises. And they took it to encourage our partners. We don't just do that in Japan. We do that in many other contexts. So while our missions culture is heavily weighted towards the sending missionaries well, we have so many great partnerships with deep, long-term relationships that we get to partner with for a very long time. But the question that I get most often is not related to sending missionaries. It's not really related to caring for missionaries. It's not even related to partnering with missionaries. The, the most often question I get is, how do you find new ones? 
How do you recruit and train new missionaries? I have an answer. I, I think it's great. Most people, well, it's mixed. If you look up, you're in Philippians 2. If you look up to verse 19, this is my answer to how we get new missionaries. Verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself may come too. Remember, Paul is the missionary here, right? And, and he was sent from Antioch, the mature church. But as he's going, he meets a young man named Timothy. Acts chapter 16 tells us that Timothy was already a believer when Paul met him. He had a good reputation in his local church. And it, it sounds like from these verses, Timothy has become a dear friend to Paul. And in his own heart, God has grown a sincere love for the local churches that are being planted. Paul feels comfortable sending Timothy as his personal representative. And then we also know from the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy that the young man eventually grows into a capable church leader in Ephesus. In fact, we could turn to Paul's letter to Timothy Ephesus, Timothy in Ephesus in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you could turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is how Paul encourages his Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That might not sound like a missionary training program, but it's the only one we have. We like to grow Timothys here. Timothy was presented with the gospel in his home. He was discipled in his faith by his mother and his grandmother. He's a generational Christian. He earned a good reputation in his local church. His brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium praised him. And as Paul is passing through Iconium, he sees something he likes in Timothy. We're not really told what it is. Maybe it's because his father was Greek, his mother was Jewish. Maybe it was just a, a personality thing. We, we don't know. What we do know, Timothy was very helpful to Paul. And we see Timothy was also very helpful to the Ephesian church and the Philippian church and the brothers and sisters at Iconium and Lystra. Timothy was a helpful young man. So on the two trips that I mentioned already in Thailand and in Japan, I think there were people on both trips that I would consider in the Timothy range of life experience and ministry experience. But there's another trip this summer that seemed to be specifically built for these young, helpful kinds of disciples. I've mentioned Campus Outreach a couple of times already. As the name may imply, if you're not familiar with them, they are an evangelistic ministry focused on university campuses. They have a, a staff presence 
an office at the Fort Thomas campus. All of the students from University of Cincinnati attend our Fort Thomas campus. They're great folks. You really should meet them. Send me an email. I'll give you their cell phone number. But one of the things I love about campus outreach is their urgency. The urgency they place on sharing the faith of a new believer. It's not unlikely for a woman to meet Jesus, have saving faith on a Friday, and be out talking to her friends the next Monday, if not before. It's not a, it's not a metrics thing. They don't have quotas. They're just really that excited to talk about the life-changing power of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it's not surprising to me that three of these students from UC, they found me and they said they wanted to help another campus outreach staff member get a ministry off the ground in a brand new university in Thailand. It's actually a pretty regular strategy. Americans create a bit of a buzz, and so it's easy to make friends quickly. But folks, it is not hype. It was a six-week commitment That's a whole summer for a student where they could have been making money. They could have been investing in exciting experiences, the once-of-a-lifetime kinds of things. But instead, they're pouring their life out for a person they may never meet again. So are these three kids going to be our next missionaries? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know that they know. It's not that kind of a trip. But I know that these are the kinds of people that we want to explore with. Because they've been doing the work of an evangelist and a discipler for years before they ever got a stamp on their passport. They have been helpful to their church. They have been helpful to their families. They have been helpful to the ministry at the University of Cincinnati. They've developed a reputation for godliness among their peers They might not be the toughest. They might not be the smartest. They're definitely not the most outgoing. But I feel very confident that if I told them what Paul told Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will teach others also, they won't bat an eye. They won't have to ask, how do I do that? Where do I start? Because they've already been doing it. And so from my standpoint, I see almost everyone at Grace Fellowship as somewhere in the pipeline for missions, especially young people. If you have an excitement, a joy to talk about Jesus, especially our community group leaders, our community group hosts, you know what it is to welcome people in and point them towards worshiping Christ, especially our counselors who know how to use the word of God to address real problems, especially our care group leaders, especially if you're on a serve team, especially if you volunteer with one of our local partners. Basically, if you're a growing disciple at Grace Fellowship Church, you should get your passport ready. I hear there's a backlog, so you might want to get on that. I hope by now you're getting a feel for what the culture of missions is here at Grace, how God's grown us, how he's gifted us, specifically in regards to cross-cultural ministry. And I am so grateful for what he's done here. 
but I don't think he's done yet. So I want to take a brief look at what I think is coming next for our missions culture. I want to tread lightly here with humility, as we always should when we look to the future. We do not know what God will do. But if you would turn to me, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, I think we have a glimpse of what he might do. And it is exciting. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered in Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped between Soko and Azekah in the Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered. They encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there was a valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs. He had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come here to battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, (laughs) then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him, you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed, greatly afraid. Many of you are familiar with this passage. You know how the story goes. Young shepherd boy David arrives to the scene with a care package from his dad. And he hears the giant. And his reaction is pretty much the opposite of every other man on the premises. Skip down to verse 26. David says to the man who stood around him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this? uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. David's not dismayed. David is not afraid. David is indignant. And he starts asking around trying to figure out why nobody has volunteered to shut this guy up. At face value, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, right? I mean, Goliath is literally a giant war machine. Who volunteers for that? You don't need a degree in ancient weights and measures to recognize Goliath is a tank. And the Israelites are seriously outgunned. But underneath those two questions that David asked, I think there is a sincere, faith-filled assumption 
that no person, no Jew, Gentile, giant, or otherwise, can survive very long in defiance of the living God. And so I think in a way, David is really just asking, which one of us is it going to be? Somebody's going to get him. Who is it? We've all been there. Somebody orders appetizers at the table. There's always that one cheese stick left. I'm just looking, is it me? You only had one. I'm... We know somebody's going to eat it. We already paid for it. And a hot cheese stick is way better than a cold cheese stick. So the longer we wait, the worse this gets. Who is going to do it? And the way I read it, David is a man convinced. There is no chance that nobody fights Goliath. That's inconceivable. Skip to verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David knew someone was going to go down there and kill Goliath. Because if nobody else volunteered, he'd do it himself. And when David lists off his predator-killing resume, I don't think he's trying to prove how brave or strong or skilled he is. It's not an application. <laughs> it's not like he's saying, you know, I've got a lot of practice killing things that are really good at killing me. So I think I'm the guy. Put me in, coach. What David is saying is he has a lot of practice trusting God in very scary circumstances and that God has a lot of practice in saving David. So this is not unfamiliar. In fact, the things that David is used to trusting God with are even scarier because they're just acting in accordance with nature. Bears will be bears. Whereas Goliath is acting in defiance of God. And so this is way more risky for Goliath than it is for David. Friends, I do not believe David woke up one morning and decided to become a giant slayer. But it was no accident that he faced down lions and bears regularly. 
I do not think David was preparing specifically for Goliath, but he was being prepared. I do think that David woke up most mornings and he decided God's reputation is the most important thing on his agenda today. And some days that meant faithfully watching the sheep. And some days that meant joyfully writing a praise song. And some days that meant waking up and killing a whole lot of Philistines, starting with the big guy. My family's been at Grace a long time. We're probably as close to the beginning of things as anybody is. And I can say we did not set out to reach the hard and dark places of the world with the gospel. But it is no accident that our average cross-cultural relationship is well past a decade. Some of them pushing them over 20 years. We were not training for the hard, dark, silent places, but we have been prepared. And I do think our people wake up most mornings believing that true freedom comes not from doing what you want to do, but doing what you're made to do. So we know how to endure. I think our people wake up most mornings believing the good life doesn't come from getting more stuff, but from knowing and loving God. So our people live with less. I think our people wake up most mornings believing that we can trust God, even when it hurts. And so we're not afraid. And some days, that means sitting one-on-one in a counseling room. And some days, that means serving at middle school camp. And some days, that means helping to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the most resistant, unreached people group left in the world. Earlier this year, three ladies of our church went out to investigate that people group. They went to the United, United Arab Emirates to get some first-hand information for our church. What are we up against? My wife, Pastor Brian's wife, another woman from our Fort Thomas campus, we wanted to see who these people are. We found they have some of the very same characteristics as the Philistine giant. They're not native to UAE. Their ancestral home is hard. It's tough. It's the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's between 65 and 70 million. It's huge. Huge amount of people. They are devout Muslims. And they are overtly resistant to outside influences. Specifically, the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the surface... The reasons for this people group being unreached, it's obvious. It's very, very difficult to reach them, and they are very, very good at resisting. I honestly do not know of a people group so uniquely positioned to resist the gospel of Jesus. They are very good at it. And I'm not saying that our church is skilled at engaging these kinds of people, We haven't tried yet. I'm not even saying anybody has specifically asked us to volunteer. 
What I am saying is we have an unusual missions culture here. And that we've had some practice at the kinds of stresses and struggles that go along with engaging these kinds of people. And we have a lot to learn, but friends, we have a lot to offer. And trust me, there are not many churches signing up to take this one on. I want to be very, very clear. We have every intention of keeping our existing cross-cultural efforts in place for as long as God allows. This people group will be an addition to what God has already given us. But I also want to be very clear. I want our whole church family to understand this is not business as usual. It's the kind of field that takes decades or longer before we see any recognizable fruit. There are new levels of risk and vulnerability here. To put it bluntly, this is the kind of place where friends and co-laborers get martyred. I'm not saying that to shock people. I'm saying that to add gravity to what I'm going to ask for next. The most pressing and urgent need that our church has as it relates to this people group is prayer. We need people to pray. We are in way over our snorkel here, folks. And the stakes are very high. And so I'm asking, specifically asking, for 65 people from our church family to commit to at least one year of prayer. Specifically for this new people group. That's in addition to what you're already giving and doing. It could be daily, it could be weekly, it doesn't matter to me. But 65 of our people, that's one of us for every one million of them. That doesn't sound like much, does it? But we have to start somewhere. And help us get going on this, I'm going to recruit some outside help from a partner who specifically trains people to pray for this people group. They are very good at what they do. Unfortunately for us, they also do most of it in Spanish. We'll figure it out as we go. I'm going to close with this. One of the greatest joys of this past year for me personally was sitting at tables with multiple generations of cross-cultural workers. The scriptures often talk about the generational blessings and how a wise man or a faithful woman will give an inheritance to their grandchildren. And if God chooses to save my daughter, I can't think of a better legacy to leave her than a tradition of proclaiming the glories of God in the hard, dark, silent places of our planet. Who knows? Maybe in a hundred years. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be awesome if a century from now, our great-grandchildren are the Epaphroditus, are the Timothys, maybe even the Pauls, who are encouraging a fledgling church in Central Asia. But that inheritance... For our great-grandchildren starts with faith-filled courage like David had. The joyful prayer and worship that he was known for. Let's do that today. God, would you give us the heart of King David 
to joyfully, sacrificially pray and praise. We love you. Amen.